the devastation in my heart is always there. A piece of my heart is not there because of that, of what it did to my parents and really my family. We know that people living with mental health issues recover all the time. It's not just possible, it's probable. We know that in the field. We have to get that message to other people. It's been a hard year. We went months without really seeing each other, you know, kind of like at the front door, dropping something off, a care package saying hello. So then when we all got vaccinated and we could hug each other, it was like the most wonderful moment ever. And I'm like, okay, we can never go a year without hugging again. A few days ago, I had the pleasure to speak with Jamie Angelini, who is the statewide director of disaster services and special projects at the Mental Health Association in New Jersey, MHANJ Atlantic County. Jamie's major responsibility is to support Atlantic County during crisis moments, or shall I say during catastrophes. During the year of COVID-19, the organization had new challenges and dealt with the instability of the deadly virus. Though with extreme optimism that Jamie exuded, her team was able to support the many who needed and continue to need emotional counseling. Jamie also went on to say that re-entering the workforce now is an issue that needs to be addressed as we all move forward to resuming our lives, but not the lives we may have lived prior to the pandemic. As we continued to speak, she mentioned Superstorm Sandy, which pounded the Eastern Seaboard on October 29, 2012. Her crisis management team supported that as well as other natural disasters. As she spoke of Sandy, my immediate reaction was the devastation that it brought my family, with the loss of our home, materialistic possessions, and a great deal of mental anguish and fatigue. As I said to Jamie, I only wish my mom knew that your organization existed. She suffered extreme mental distress and felt overwhelmed and unsure about her future and a vision to move forward. Thank you so much, Jamie, for your insightful wisdom, strength, and endurance as you support the Atlantic County community and empower many lives. Hey, everyone, this is Helene, and this is coming from my heart. I loved having Jamie on. We had so much to talk about. And I was so happy that she decided to circle back to us because she supported us with the mental health collaboration we had in May. And we just knew that we definitely wanted to have a future conversation. So thanks so much, Jamie. Um, you definitely are an amazing human and you do so much. So we're so grateful for you and all of your organization's efforts. So my coming from the heart friends, hope all is great with you guys. Happy July 4th. I can't believe it's July 4th weekend already. This summer is just going. So hopefully everyone has some great plans, can get out there, see friends, see relatives. But just please make sure, as I was saying earlier in an Instagram Live, wear your mask if you're going to be in public areas because the virus is just very much out there still and we just definitely need to protect ourselves of course even when you are double vaccinated i also wanted to mention that of course this episode is going to be airing tomorrow which is july 2nd at 6 a.m eastern standard time and i again i we appreciate your support we value all of you and if you could just go on to apple and rate and review us we would absolutely love that check in with us dm us email us let us know your thoughts, what's going on in your lives. If you have an idea about a different platform that we should look into, we'd love to hear all of that. Also wanted to uh, mention that, of course, on Thursdays, I have said this before, I was trying to do stuff at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Some of the guests now can't come on at that time. They're trying to come on a little bit earlier. So the best way to know exactly when the Instagram Live is going to be happening is to check out our stories. Of course, you'll see it pop, on your, pop up on your phone. But if you want to prepare your day and make sure you don't miss the Instagram Live, um, yeah, just take it, check out the stories and you'll see it there. We also do record them as well. So if you miss the live, you can always catch us at another time. And what else? do I want to tell you? Oh, yes. In July, of course, which we are now in July, which is 
today, July. I can't even believe it. It's actually happening, as I was mentioning, July 4th. We are going to have our lifestyle, culture, and food segment. So get ready to have some interesting conversation, or shall I say, we are going to have some interesting conversation with various guests talking on this subject, which I thought would really be fun for the summer to talk a lot about food, because we all know we love food, and it's just a great topic to be talking about. We had Jeremy Jakopowicz on about food. Of course, he's an influencer. We had Sam last year come on as well. So yeah, to just look forward to that. And as we uh, continue to celebrate Pride, although it is now July, you know, I think we've decided to celebrate Pride for the 12 months and not just focus in on June. I think that these celebrations are just a continuum of our day-to-day life and what we all should be doing and supporting each other. So again, we're not just going to focus on Pride in June. It's going to be a 12-month thing. And we're going to have some people on from the queer community talk a lot about that in July. And I think we're going to have a food segment. So as we're talking to our different types of guests on the Instagram lives, we're going to have some cooking going on too. So look forward to all this stuff. And last to say, have a glorious weekend and uh, just sit back and relax and enjoy this great conversation with Jamie. So we're so excited today to have Jamie Angelini to join our Coming From The Heart family, Alexandra wherever you are, child out there in uh, cyber world, maybe you're going to pop in and say hi to us as you are doing your travels. So Jamie, we are pleased to have you today. You hopped on with the collaboration with Mental Health, and I just felt like you had so much to say about your platform, and I don't want to give anything away about your platform, so I'm just going to give you the, they say, give you the mic and let you speak and introduce yourself. So hey, Jamie. Hey, it's so good to see you again, and I loved the collaboration last time, so I'm really happy to be back. So I'm Jamie Angelini. I work for the Mental Health Association in New Jersey, where that has really been my my home away from home for the last 20 years. I am a mental health advocate. I'm a mental health educator. So I get to spend a lot of my time in the community talking about mental health and wellness, really focusing on how we can reduce stigma, how we can increase mental health literacy. This year has been a busy one for me, as you can imagine. I'm involved in a lot of programs providing crisis counseling for individuals in New Jersey who've been impacted by COVID-19, so a lot of emotional support and support groups. A lot of work that we call disaster mental health has been you know, really something I've always appreciated and enjoyed, and I think after Superstorm Sandy, I got to really use some of those skills around disaster mental health. And now with COVID, those skills are transferable and and we're working with a very different disaster, not a natural disaster, but really still working with communities and and people um, who've been impacted. I also get to spend a lot of time in the high schools with the students um, and the colleges talking about suicide prevention. I teach a class called Mental Health First Aid, if you're familiar with that. A wonderful training for the public to, again, increase mental health literacy, reduce stigma, and just teach people signs and symptoms. Um, So that's a a little bit about the work that I'm lucky enough to do. Okay, I'm taking like 100 (laughs) notes. (laughs) I'm like, okay, I want to talk about that. I want to talk about this. And then Alexandra will probably do an eye roll because she's a Gen Zer. Here's all my notes that (laughs) I have about you and stuff that I remembered from the collaboration and some, some stuff that you had sent me in your bio. So How do I begin this? Well, first of all, again, thank you. Thank you for your time. Thank you for the amazing work you do. You are an amazing human as you connect with the community that we have here and so many people um, benefit from your hard work and dedication. So thank you so much for that. I definitely appreciate that. Also, I want to thank Robin Soloff for introducing me to you because I would have had no idea how to even connect with you and your organization. So thank you, Robin, for doing that as well. So to begin with, Gosh, you were mentioning, and as I'm jotting my notes, disaster mental health. Now, for people who are listening in, maybe you can just explain a little bit. We can kind of go from that into morph into the other things you mentioned as well. Sure. So when we look at disaster mental health, and I am what's called a DRCC, Disaster Response Crisis Counselor. Um, it's a New Jersey credential, and I know there's other states that also have individuals who have been trained and vetted to provide mental health 
after a disaster, and it's not clinical services. So we're certainly not talking about sitting with a clinician or a therapist. This is really after a disaster, working with individuals on understanding the reaction to that disaster, focusing on resiliency, individual and community resiliency. How do we mitigate stress? So for example, others who do the work that I do, um, they may do mental health you know, disaster training, which is a piece of what I do, but they also may be called upon to be deployed after a hurricane. That's a really concrete example of a natural disaster where after Superstorm Sandy in New Jersey, we went into shelters. And a part of what we did was just walking through that shelter and just saying to people, how are you doing? How can I help? And just sitting and being present. So a piece of disaster mental health for the work that we do is just that emotional presence and validating for someone that they've been through something difficult. So those are the same skills we're using with COVID, although much larger scale and has impacted you know, everyone in the world. But saying to folks, we're all in this, and not to minimize that we're all in this, but we're all experiencing this disaster and working with individuals to focus on developing coping strategies. Because I don't know about you, but when I'm stressed, I forget all my coping strategies. I have to really focus on digging deep to build those back up and remember them. So sometimes having someone like myself, a crisis counselor, sit with someone and say, let's talk about how you've you know, gotten through difficult things before and developing or redeveloping those coping strategies or adapting what you have and just being that, that ear for someone. So that's a real big piece of what disaster mental health is. It's, it's certainly not clinical. It, it's really just being there for someone. And I think that's why it works so well. The difference in this disaster with COVID-19 is that we're all impacted. So after a natural disaster, you know, a hurricane, a flood, a fire, you know, typically crisis counselors go out, they're okay, their family's okay, and you go and help others. Um, we're all in the midst of this, and we're still in that impact phase, which is really different from any other disaster. So um, as a responder, that's been something that I think we're still learning how to move forward and help other people while we're in this disaster ourselves, and, and while we're still in that impact phase, which is, is like nothing else we've ever been through in the work that I do. Yes, I would, when I'm saying yes, I'm just agreeing with yeah. everything that you stated because I wanna circle back to so much content that you just mentioned. So as a crisis counselor, you would reference yourself as a responder. I, I don't want to at any means water it down, but I'm just trying to express to the listeners out there that's that's basically what you, your position is really about, okay? How did you get into this? I got into the mental health field um, right after college in like, you know, 2001. And I was drawn to the field because I had family members who lived with mental health challenges and substance use disorders. So, you know, like, like everyone in this field, we don't just end up here. <laughs> I'm here for a very special reason. And that's what kind of drew me to the field. What drew me to the Mental Health Association was that we are an agency that truly believes in the philosophy of peers being peer providers and peer specialists and working in the field. So the idea that individuals living with mental health challenges can do well and recover, it's not just an idea. It's, it's what we do, it's what we live every day at the Mental Health Association. So a majority of our workforce are individuals who come with their own lived experience. So that's what really drew me to the agency where I've stayed all these years. What drew me to the field is personal experience. And I would say what has kept me in this work has been that we're consistently able to grow and change and evolve and watching the system change from where I started 20 years ago to a system that now is definitely more inclusive and to watch our community, we have a long way to go, but to watch our community really start to reduce that stigma around mental health. What brought me to disaster work, so I was working you know, in, in the mental health field, and then I just started to, to go to a few trainings and I was kind of hearing this thing called disaster mental health and I didn't know what the heck it was. I went to a few trainings and just started to really love the idea of wanting to respond after a disaster and use the skills that I have. And that was probably in, you know, 2007. And then, you know, kind of sat around, nothing happened, which is not a bad thing. And, you know, you're skilled, you're trained and you're certified and you wait. And then um, in New Jersey, we had, you know, a slew of different things happen. We had Hurricane Irene, we had the derecho, the straight line winds, then we had Superstorm Sandy. And so all at once, I felt like I was able to start to use those skills I had been trained for. And after Sandy, 
gosh, I mean, we worked in response for probably four years and, and some are still working with survive, you know, survivors is, is what we refer to people as. And then, you know, just, I stayed really involved in, in that work. I started, you know, doing some per diem work as a trainer for our New Jersey disaster and terrorism branch. And then here came COVID and fortunately our, our agency and, and those that do what I do were, I think, pretty well positioned to, to kind of get up and respond again, the way we did after some of those other different type of natural disasters. I find what's so interesting is that when you went to school, so back to college, you were, what type of, what was your major when you were in Psychology. School? Okay. So then it was a training course that brought you to this particular position of mental health, disaster mental health. So it was after I was already working in the mental health field that I started to learn more about this really specialized disaster mental health. So I was already working in the field, doing some work, um, and then just started to learn more about, you know, becoming a a disaster response crisis counselor. And in New Jersey, that was really developed after 9-11, because I think our state looked at, for one, we needed mental health providers to respond, but we needed vetted mental health providers what happened after 9-11 is that anyone and everyone wanted to go and help, which is a wonderful thing. Anyone that had a mental health background or not wanted to be of service to others. And New Jersey really looked at, well, how do we create a specialized team of mental health providers who are all trained the same way? They've all been vetted. They all have background checks. We bring people together to do tabletop exercises so that we're prepared and ready. And that's where that credential came from. And I was lucky enough to, to start to just go to some of these trainings, learn more about it. And, and now I encourage others all the time to become in New Jersey disaster response crisis counselors because it is, it's a wonderful credential. It is a volunteer credential. And, you know, if we call on you and you're not available, that's okay. Um, but if you are, you can really make a difference in your community who might be going through something difficult. I just kind of fell in, in love with disaster mental health. No, no. And so you yeah. mentioned, so it's volunteer. Did you say it's a volunteer? The, the credential, yeah, in New Jersey. So there's people from all different backgrounds uh-huh. who come together. So we do have some clinicians. We have non-clinicians. We have educators and teachers, mm-hmm. chaplains who really okay. looked at, hey, how, how would I get this training and, and be able to give back and be part of this team? So when we bring people together after a disaster, we have such a diverse team around the state, which is also a really beautiful thing. How it's many great. people, yeah, how many people are involved, let's say, in your- in uh, the- We probably have several hundred, but wow. you have to imagine, wow. you know, when you when you call on individuals and you, you bring your team together in the midst of a disaster, if only 10% can show up, Okay. Um, that's why we're always trying to really build up the the DRCC program. Right. And how much time does that take out of, let's say, a person's regular job or whatever they're doing? I'm just the reason I'm actually even yeah. asking these specific questions is there might be, of course, someone listening who would want yeah. to be interested in contact you. Yeah. So, I mean, individuals can go on our website at the Mental Health Association and learn more about the Disaster Response Crisis Counselor Program. It's five initial trainings, um, which, don't, you know, each training may be between three and six hours. A lot of them right now are online, which is really nice. And then after that, there is a background check, fingerprints, an interview process. And, you know, you want to really keep up to date. You want to do um, your continuing ed, you know, credits every couple of years. And then you just stay involved. And if something happens, you're called upon. And, and, you know, the way things are going, you just never know when there will be a disaster or where there'll be some, you know, something will happen where we might need you. Wow. Back to that amazing human that you are. Yeah, you definitely are. Because a lot of people would be like, well, I don't know. And I'm not sure how to go about doing this. So I definitely think it takes a certain type of person in a, in, in general to be involved with this. And why I'm also mentioning, and I'm glad you gave the information, is that all walks of life can be doing it. You know, it doesn't mean that you have to have a specific background of psychology. You could be a doctor, you could be uh, working in a grocery store, you could be a frontline, whatever it is, you can be involved. Mm -hmm. So I just wanted to clarify that. You talked about Hurricane Sandy, Superstorm Sandy, and that, as you were speaking about it, I got chills. And I, you know, and I I become really, you know, kind of try to keep it together here for a moment because my family was so greatly impacted with that. We we lost our home pretty much. I mean, where we live, of course, in South Jersey, where everybody kind of more or less knows where I'm at. I really believe that it took out my parents. We lost my parents due to other illnesses, but I believe in my heart that it had so much to do 
with the impact of that superstorm because they had lived here like many people in this community in South Jersey and their home of course was their stability and so many other hurricanes. I mean, I remember as a kid staying in the house, you know, we, it wasn't to the capacity of the storms that obviously came through at present time. And with Sandy coming back, and I will never forget walking into the home that I'm in now, which has been raised and renovated and all the other things that needed to be attended to post-storm, but walking in and smelling the bay and the ocean and the disaster that had happened here and the eight feet of water. And, you know, people, as they say, in certain communities, in beach communities come and they're brand new and they have no idea what the people who lived here endured. And that's just life. That's just called a natural disaster. Natural disasters happen all over the world and people visit places like Hawaii or this place or Mexico, where obviously there's so many, or Puerto Rico and, you know, the devastation in my heart is always there. A piece of my heart is not there because of that, of what it did to my parents and really my family, because my parents were living here at the time. Unfortunately, my dad got ill and was never able to get back into the house. And my mom was barely here for a year with that. But you were, you, you talked so eloquently about how you and your organization would go into certain communities. And I really wish and had hoped that my mom was able to get that, that comfort and those resources because she didn't, she was not, I mean, as far as I know, she did not. And it took her out because you lost everything. And, you know, for so many people, the insurance situations were, everything was a disaster. Yeah. It, was, it was just terrible. And people were getting taken advantage of and builder, builders. I mean, there's some, and there's, shall we say, there's the good, the bad, and the ugly of that. Mm -hmm. And um, unfortunately, my parents was the ugly. So again, back to your counseling aspect and going into these communities, it was such a devastation. And I would never point the finger to say, oh, well, my mother didn't get the support that she needed because there were so many that did get the support that they needed, whether it was the financial support or anything like that. Yeah, you just want to comment on that a little bit? Yeah, and I, I thank you for sharing. And I could see immediately how those memories, even though it's been how many years later, sit with you as if it were today. I, I, I can see that in you. And that's a piece of why we do the work we do. And we would go door to door, you know, so the thing about crisis counseling, and when I say it's not traditional, is that it's so not traditional. We're not setting up in an office. We're knocking on someone's door, you know, in during Sandy, not COVID, of course. Yes. We would be in a supermarket with a table set up with information. We would be anywhere we could to just connect with someone. Because for some people, just having someone to talk to and say, here's what I've been through even if you, there's nothing you can do, you don't have a resource, you can't fix this, let me just tell you my story. We found that was really helpful for people and for people to come together in their communities and share with others who had had that common experience. But yeah, yeah. We, we definitely see that in all disasters, making a difference, just having someone there. And sometimes it's having someone there who's not family, an outside person to problem solve with. Absolutely. Or to just say, you know, can you guide me in the right direction? Oh, absolutely. Use resources. Um, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah, one of the, the pieces, so we have our, our individual crisis counseling. Um, right now, we also have support groups. We also have a call line and a text line. So we've really tried to make it so that people can reach out for support in any way that, that works for them. Mm -hmm. And different yeah, from cool. Sandy. And Sandy, we, we didn't have a text line. People weren't, you know, texting yeah. as much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, no, of course. And yeah, of course. We certainly yeah. wouldn't have been able to do Zoom groups um, and things like that. So it's, no. it's so no. different. But, but the concepts are the same. And the idea that people need that added support. And, you know, 10 years from now, we'll be talking about COVID and those of us who have been so deeply impacted will we'll share similar stories and experiences the way you do about Sandy. No, no, absolutely. You know, and like anything in life, unless you've experienced it, you don't get it. You, yeah. you don't get it. And I think the impact of specifically the community that I'm in now, I think, you know, of course, not the people who are new to it, but the ones who've lived here, 
the, the vulnerability, the angst of storms coming our way is very much there. Very, very much there. You know, when you hear stuff happening and it's like you go right back to that trigger moment yeah. of, oh, my God, is this really happening? And um, I think it just makes us think or makes me think about, again, like I mentioned, natural disasters all over the world, but how fragile our resources can be at times, really. I mean, I, you know, like everyone else that was in, in Superstorm Sandy, without even really being able to get down here because it's a barrier island and making sure my parents were safe and then having them relocate and then all that stuff. And so for so many, they don't really understand what I'm talking about because they didn't experience it. Yeah. And then, you know, of course, moving on to COVID, you know, obviously at present time, if you want to comment a little bit on that, because that is an entirely different scenario of how you guys had to support. And again, your your work is just incredible. So, yeah. Yeah. And nothing could have prepared us for, for the mental health impact. And we still don't know what it will be. You know, people often will ask me, you know, what do you think the long-term mental health impact is? And are we seeing suicide rates go up? And my answer is typically the same because we just don't know yet. It's too early to tell. What we do know is that we've never gone through anything like this. So even our, our last great pandemic of 1918, 1919, there was no playbook left for us. So we're writing the playbook. Now we, you and I and everyone else, we're writing these lessons learned about what will be the long-term impact of, of mental health from COVID-19. So we're really just kind of taking it as, as it comes. And it's been such a, a shift in what people need as the year and a half has gone on. Um, you know, we went from that fear and anxiety of the uncertainty of what COVID even was and how it would impact us to almost now back to this fear and anxiety and uncertainty of the reopening. So we've kind of come for some of us, I don't want to speak for everyone, full circle of there's still the uncertainty and uncertainty we know is what drives anxiety. And that has been every piece of this. We have lost so much, but we have completely lost predictability. And that in any disaster is what makes it so difficult. And now, you know, we're talking to people about the re-entry stress. So in our support groups and um, in our one-to-one, -one, you know, sessions for counseling, and it's hard, you know, we're not going to flip a switch and just go back. We spend so much time talking. And I, when I say we, generally speaking about, we want to go back to normal, whatever that was. And now then we start talking about the new normal, which everyone is tired of hearing that term. I know I am because it's, you know, what we say in, in like our trainings, you know, much more new than, than normal. And, and everything about this year has been new. And we just continue to adapt and adjust. And that has been taxing on all of us. It's been exhausting. And that chronic stress that for some of us, we may not even realize we've been in the midst of it that heightened sense of arousal for so long until it catches up with us. Um, so we're consistently talking about self-care. I know everyone's tired of hearing the word self-care, but we're talking about it. We're talking about well-being actually as a different term because we don't know what's to come in the coming months. You know, we feel like we're turning a corner and that's great, but people are still feeling the stress, the worry, the impact, and just the grief and loss whether you've lost a loved one, um, and I have, I've lost a loved one this year to COVID-19, but for so many people, they've lost so much. And I always say, even if you have not lost a loved one, please honor your feelings of grief and loss because we've lost our normalcy. We've lost cultural rituals. We've lost routine. Um, whatever it is, honor that and, and process that because we, we definitely have lost a lot. And and we weren't prepared. Nothing could have prepared us for this. So doing our best to support each other, support our community. Um, but knowing that uncertainty is still lingering out there, I think is what's, you know, causing the continuous fear and, and worry and anxiety that many people are feeling. Not all, but, but many. Agreed. Yeah, absolutely. And again, condolences. I'm so sorry about your, you know, your loss with Thank COVID. You. And what I also just wanted to stress to, to the coming from the heart family is that in certain communities, it may seem that everything's back to normal. I know down here at the shore, it's like, oh, was there a pandemic? I mean, no one truly really wears masks ever as compared to maybe some communities up in North Jersey that I've been to recently where at least if you're going to some restaurants or some places that masks are being worn and so forth. But what upsets me or what concerns me sometimes, and I, I say this to my son all the time, is that 
again, so many people have lost. And if you haven't lost, or if it hasn't impacted you, at least care enough to be concerned about others who have. And I really think it goes back to a cultural perspective. And I said this very much in the beginning, Alexandra and I used to talk about this a lot of times in our intros, is that it's the, it's the I, me, I'm good. I don't need to worry about anybody else. And that's why the lack of masks had issues and, and so forth and so on. And it, and it makes me, it makes me crazy actually a little bit, a lot of it about that because so much has happened in the year of the pandemic. And, you know, again, people who've lost or lost jobs or situations or how to move or all kinds of things have happened. And if you haven't, well, good for you, but so many have. And there's other countries out there, specifically like in India or other third world countries where COVID and the pandemic is very much alive and the vaccines haven't quite reached to that capacity. And of course, even here in the United States where depending upon which state you live in, the vaccines are not maybe as present or people are choosing not to get the vaccines and that becomes a little bit more involved conversation, which I don't wanna go into quite now because that's not really what this is about. But circle back to what you were saying is care about another human care the fact that the impact of this pandemic has really been tough for so many and just be kind that's yeah. really my words yeah no, yeah that's my that. that's yeah yeah definitely my words so you know back to you mentioned you had said at the beginning about a specific course or something that you i'm looking at my notes i'm trying to find it yeah yeah, talk a mental health about first aid, which I, yeah. I could talk all day about mental okay. health first aid. Um, yeah. It's cool. Yeah. It's probably, it, it's just one of my most favorite training courses that I have the honor of, of teaching. So I'm a mental health first aid instructor. Mental health first aid is offered all over the world. It's in 22 countries. There's like 2 million people trained in the United States in mental health first aid. So it truly is a movement. It's so much more than just an eight hour class. It's a movement of people coming together, getting trained. So just like CPR and first aid, you know, we wow. all run out and we get trained in that, especially, you know, those of us who are moms, it's like one of the first things we do because we want to be able to recognize if, you know, someone we love, if, if our child or someone in our family, we do it for work, you know, if someone was experiencing a medical crisis, we want to be able to jump in, help stabilize until the professional comes. Mental health first aid, we want to think about it the same way, that if everyone in the community could recognize early signs and symptoms and talk to someone about what's going on, intervene, and then maybe encourage professional help if that's what's needed. It's not always needed, and we know that. But just noticing and having the confidence and the tools and the skills to say, hey, I'm concerned, how can I help, is a big piece of the class. We take people through, you know, stats and statistics, you know, recognizing, you know, what some of the disorders are, but that's not what it's about. It's really about how do I recognize an early sign or symptom in myself, my loved one, if I'm working in my professional world, and then how do I help that person? What do I say? We use this five-step action plan called ALGE. And so the A is assess for risk of suicide or harm, which everybody can do. You do not have to be a clinician to do a suicide assessment. We're not talking about a clinical assessment. It's just saying the words, are you thinking about suicide? And we teach people that in the class. And we say, you know, we know there's myths out there that if you talk about suicide, you would give someone the idea that is an absolute myth that is not true. Someone's either thinking about it or they're not. We would never give them the idea. But if we said to someone, I'm so concerned about you, here's what I've noticed. And are you thinking about suicide? They're much more likely to tell us or to at least acknowledge, wow, Jamie realizes I'm in emotional pain and no one else has realized that. So maybe I might be that one person that they would open up to. So we talk about, you know, the A is assess for risk or suicide or harm. The L in algae is listening, but it's listening respectfully and non-judgmentally, which sounds really easy to do, but we need to practice that every single day. The G is give reassurance and information, very different from advice, which we're great at giving, but it's just being there. It's reassuring someone, it's giving them practical information and saying, I'm here for you. And then the two E's in algae, there's one E, which, which is encouraging professional help. And sometimes that is needed, and we know that. And there's a way to say that to someone. So instead of saying, you really need a counselor, maybe I could say, hey, I'm here for you, but there's also people who are trained 
you know, would you like me to help you make an appointment? Or can I go with you? Or can I help you make that phone call? Or, or do you want to look at your insurance card together? Something so simple. And then the second E in algae is encouraging self-help and other support strategies. So, you know, that might be that I'm recommending, hey, you know, we're encouraging, this is what I do for my wellness and for my mental health. Do you want to give it a try? You know, yoga, meditation, you know, riding your bike and, and throw it out there and, and see what works. So a piece of what we leave with is that action plan. Um, we work in small group scenarios. So even on Zoom, we'll do breakout rooms and work in small groups, work on scenarios. We learn about psychosis, which is probably one of the most misunderstood symptoms um, around mental, mental illness. We talk about self-care for ourselves as mental health first aiders. So if you're going to you know, take this on and become certified and be a mental health first aider, making sure that we're all taking care of ourselves as we look out for our community. So it's, um, it's a really fantastic, amazing curriculum. There's an adult curriculum, which is designed for adults who are looking out for other adults. There's a youth curriculum which I love. So that's for adults who are supporting youth. So it's great for parents and teachers and coaches, community members. And now there's a teen pilot, which I was part of. It was so exciting. So it's taught in the high schools to teenagers to look out for them themselves and their peers. So um, yeah, there's, there's some pretty cool stuff around mental health first aid. It's a wonderful training. I keep screaming to myself, wow, wow. We're going to have to get you in a class. So the next like, class that we do, um, you're going to be my invited guest. Oh my God. Whole, yeah. Um, like, like definitely. Yeah. Holy shit. As I'm thinking to myself, it's I could so say cool. that. You would love it. It's, yeah. yeah. It's so how, did, how does someone find out about this? Like, where do they go to get this information? So you really can just Google mentalhealthfirstaid.org and learn everything about mental health first aid, or you can just connect with me and, and I'll tell you all about it. Um, yeah. And also can let you know about upcoming classes, but it's just one of the coolest coolest things it's such a great movement and it's designed for anyone and everyone and that's oh. what we love about it and we feel like if we in the community community gatekeepers could all recognize signs and symptoms it could all just be more kind like you mentioned um to each other and say hey i've noticed and i care and i'm here think about the impact we could make you know when we teach the youth curriculum i always think to myself if every person who touched my kids throughout the day, their bus driver in the morning, their teacher, their basketball coach, if everyone who saw my kids in a day had a training like this, they may catch something I might miss. They may be that one trusted adult. And we know with youth, when they do the research for these programs, they say having that one trusted adult can make all the difference. So you feel, you know, you have to think about if people took a training like this, they might be that one trusted adult for a young person. And they may not even know that they are, that they're, you know, connecting in that way and, and being able to look out for those signs and symptoms. Um, you know, because we just, we know that like with anything else, medical, physical health, the sooner we see signs and symptoms, the sooner we move someone to treatment and support, whatever that looks like for that person, the better their chances for recovery. And we know that people living with mental health issues recover all the time. It's not just possible, it's probable. We know that in the field, we have to get that message to other people. And that's what's really important. And that's a, a real big piece of the curriculum that we talk about. So the question is this, as I'm just jotting down all these notes to get back to you with, I love what you just said. It's not possible, but it's probable. I love that. And is it a requirement in, in the schools as part of the curriculum to, to have this particular class or course? Not this particular course. I know that um, like suicide prevention is um, not this particular course. However, we have, so I mean, I can only speak for New Jersey, but I know across the country, there's mm -hmm. so many educators and school staff who are taking this training, who are becoming okay. instructors like myself to then deliver the training. So it is, it's a huge movement in the schools, which is really yeah. exciting. Um, yeah. And I hope awesome. it continues to grow. Yeah, I yeah. really do. Yeah, amazing. Because I want the link. We'll put the link on our on, on our feed so that people can immediately, you know, get to it and have it. Because I just know, I mean, I taught elementary, middle school. I taught grad school for a period of time. And the rate of suicide is, I mean, this is pre-COVID at that time was so massively huge. I mean, I lost a grad student to suicide. Um, he went back to China. There was no indication of anything I ever saw in the classroom. But maybe, hey, maybe if I had had this training, I would have seen something like that. And as you also mentioned about your own children, if, you know, my kids are now, of course, in college, but at that time, you know, in high school or something like that, mm -hmm. or even in college, not even. Sure. Colleges should, 
hop on this and have training yes. for instructors or professors and stuff like that. I feel like it's so simple, yep. but yet so not. You and I are just chatting about this, but yet it has to go through hoops. Why? Why does it have to go through a hoop? It To me, it's life or death. I was talking to my husband yesterday about, you know, things that are critical or things that we think that are so important in our life, like, you know, our agenda or getting something in for work at a certain time and, and this and that. And I said, you know, I learned from a very good friend of mine when I was teaching um, middle school, I was teaching elementary and middle school, and she was a counselor. And she said to me, the only thing that matters in life is when a kid is cutting themselves or they're in the situation of maybe committing suicide. To me, that's an emergency. And that resonated with me into my other jobs, into everything else I do. Everything else can wait. Life and death can't wait. And if you can have signs, like you were just mentioning, to know how to respond. And I really just think it's that people want to know that you care about them. That's yeah. really the bottom line. Like, I care, like, what's going on. But again, asking the specific questions, not just kind of glossing over things where, you know, a teenager would kind of be like, hmm, like, why is she asking me this question? I'm going to, I'm going to answer it a different way mm -hmm. and so forth and so on. A person that comes to my mind is this guest we had on Jake Goodman, who's a mental health activist. I can't remember. I think he came in or came on after you guys with the collaboration. Okay. And he actually is someone who is all over everything we're talking today and more. And he actually began his journey wanting to go to medical school, didn't get into medical school, went many different routes, finally got into medical school. He's all over TikTok. He has like a billion people checking out his message. But what he does, which is pretty amazing with TikToks, and he has a big following of Gen Zers, is that he gives information immediately in his feed. And he responds back to questions or concerns and people have a trust factor with him. And I think that's definitely something that needs to be expressed as well, that they feel like he actually does care about, you know, people's situations. He now has become a medical doctor and he's a psychiatrist. And I believe with his platform, he's going to take on the world. So, you know, I'm going to connect everybody together and we're going to eradicate the fact that suicide is such a huge component of what goes on, obviously, at many different levels. And as children with social media and all the different things that they're exposed to, it, it becomes worse and worse. Not that I'm pointing my finger completely at social media, I'll backpedal on that one, but it's different situations, different stresses, and different things going on in life. You also mentioned about self-care. Now, yeah. self-care, what do you do for self-care? My goodness, because you give so much. Is there so, so much? So I, and I will say my self-care as I talk to other people, I do the same thing myself. It has to be deliberate. It has to be planned. It doesn't come easy. You know, we are so great at taking care of other people, but I know for myself, I have to set aside that time every single day and, and almost force myself to do it, to do something for myself, even though that sounds, you know, silly but I, I need to do that. So I have to set out a time in my schedule. So whether I'm going to go out for a run, I'm going to go to the gym, I'm just going to be and do nothing else, which I think we don't do enough of that. I have to do that. And I have to set aside the time. And this year more than ever, I think I've done a, a much better job at doing that. A part of that is I spend my days talking to other people about self-care and I can't do that if I'm not going to do it myself. So, you know, really being deliberate and holding myself accountable with my family someone else you know my husband my son my daughter like hey are we going to the gym are we going for a run are we going for a bike ride are we going on a coffee date you know my husband and I do a lot of coffee dates especially with COVID when we couldn't go anywhere but that was nice to just go grab a coffee sit in the car and talk so carving out time every day is really important and it is not a luxury you know I say this to anyone listening it's not a luxury people it is a necessity. It is deliberate. It is not selfish. It doesn't mean we ignore others. It's something we have to do um, no matter what profession you're in. If you're in the helping profession, yes, yeah, step it up. Um, but anything you're doing, we're always all taking care of other people. And I think this year especially. So um, yeah, I've definitely been more de deliberate and that's the word I'll use with making sure I'm carving out Sometime and it doesn't have to be a lot of time for anyone listening. You know, they might say, I don't have time. People always say that. I, I've said that 15 minutes of your day, you know, to do something for yourself, to just be and to just relax and to take a breath is really important because we're going at such a pace. And um, 
our bodies, our minds, our souls, we have just been kind of lingering, like I said, in this fight or flight way too long. You know, it's just, we've been like in this heightened state of arousal, kind of running in the background. And it's been a long year and a half. And I, I you know, I recommend everybody really, if, if today's the day you make the change, please do it and then start to carve out some of that time for yourself. It's so important. Beautiful, Jamie. I, I couldn't have said it better myself. And I, I agree with you. I think that in my personal life too, when I decided to take on the podcast with Alexandra and take some steps back, I didn't realize the insanity of the life that I was living for so long because we just keep going. It's the treadmill, but it isn't selfish to take time for yourself. And I know the, the, the term, you know, self-care becomes a little bit, you know, okay, a little bit repetitive and everyone, but we don't, we can't think of another word besides self-care. Right. Taking so we care say yourself. well-being sometimes, well-being. you know, practice well-being. <laughs> That's right. And if you can't take care of yourself, then how the heck can you take care of your family or anybody else? Because, you know, it's all about you feeling good about you so that you can then support everything and everyone around you. And it makes you happy. I know when I take my bike ride, as I did before I hopped on with you. I got out there and I budgeted my time. It's like slotting in time for anything else that you can do in your life. And I feel that the silver lining of COVID in so many aspects is that, in that people now are doing that. And you also mentioned a little bit about people having the stress of re-entering jobs and stuff. And I think that that is probably not talked about enough, that a lot of people are having a lot of angst. If you want to just comment on that. Yeah, I will. And I think it, it's it's going to be difficult. And I think that we need to practice patience and employers are going to need to practice patience and flexibility because no one will just be able to come back like it was before. No one, even if you're excited to go back, you know, excited to be in your office again and see people and take that drive to work because you've missed it it will be difficult. It will be an adjustment. And for some people, they really have figured out this year, this different work-life balance that they didn't even know they were missing. And that's the thing. I don't think it was like, oh, I was craving this. I needed this. Um, It was almost like, I didn't even know I needed it until I had it. Until I was forced to slow down, I was like, wow, like speaking personally, I'm like this you know, those first few months when, you know, we were half complaining, like I'm stuck in the house with my family. It was a beautiful thing. Like, wow, I'm stuck in the house with my family. When would I have ever done this? Because we were always running, running to work, running to activities, you know, and and many families can, you know, attest to that. So now I think there will be many who are like, well, I kind of need to keep a piece of that for my wellness, for my mental health, for my family, for what's truly a priority. So I think people are having conversations and there's no right or wrong and and employers need to figure that out. I mean, you know, businesses still need to run and and we understand that, but I think there will be a lot of conversation about how do I come back in a way that feels good for me? And, you know, where can there be flexibility? Because I think there, you know, there will be some resistance, not in a bad way, not because people feel or are entitled, but I think we've looked at things a different way. And I think that this has opened our eyes to the idea of there's a different balance that maybe we could have. So I I definitely think the re-entry stress is going to be an ongoing conversation. Um, I know in our support groups, it comes up a lot. You know, we just create a safe space for people to share. And, you know, a lot of people are sharing that. But this is going to be very difficult over these next few months and and kind of figuring out how how do I ease back in in a way that feels good for me? And how do I mitigate my stress if, if I do need to go back full throttle? So a lot of conversations around that are happening and, and they should, they'll continue to. Yeah, I, I absolutely. And I feel that we are sort of in this readjustment period. Absolutely. And employers, depending upon where you're working and your profession, um, need to understand, and if they don't, they should, that we're entering a new world. I like what you said moments ago about, you know, we can't just resume like, you know, the past year and a half and so forth hasn't happened. You can't just go back to what it was prior to, you know, that March last year when everyone, you know, had to flounder and figure all this out because we are living a new world. Mm -hmm. Our world has completely changed. And it's interesting because it's not just, you know, here in the United States, it was the pandemic was a global issue, as we know, everybody as you, you know, we're stuck at home with the fa- with their family, but being stuck at home, 
kind of, I guess, reinvented being stuck at home because your home became your gym. It became mm -hmm. your social, it became your Zoom. It became all these different things that we never knew existed because of the fact of this horrific virus that was happening. So people, people are resilient. We often use that word on this podcast. People were and became quite resilient, but referencing back to employers and people's situations, often I feel that many people might be switching a job. Now I'm not going out, you know, you're not hearing it from coming from the heart that I'm telling you to quit your job and go somewhere else. <laughs> Clearly, I'm not saying that. I'm saying that if a situation is happening and you're not happy with it and you can move on to something else, then maybe that's the choice that you have to make. Or also the silver lining of COVID that maybe there's other jobs and other professions that may be available to you now that were not available because of the virtuality of what this all has become. Balance. Resiliency, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So yeah, so, and and angst. I mean, I think people really have to identify the fact, I know my husband's now going to have to go back three days a week and not happy about that, you know? Going back into Manhattan, having to do the mm -hmm. commute, like, you know, it's a whole other experience that you kind of need to be patient, I think, with yourselves about it. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, this has been an amazing conversation. I just love hanging out with you. And I guess the question always is, where can people find you? They can email me at jangelini at mhanj.org. That's a great way to find me. Just email me and I'm very responsive. So we'll get right back to you. You're, you're amazingly responsive because <laughs> I you are. I have not that I'm saying everybody out there that I connect with isn't, but yeah, you're like right back. I'm like, oh my God, I love her. Anyway, because I feel that's so nice. Like if you send something to someone, it is really nice yeah. to get the response back. So thank you. And last thing I just want to chat for a moment is our segment called Heart to Heart. So this is a segment that we like to reference as a, a special moment or something in your life or a person in your life or a situation in your life that has touched you personally or has touched your heart? My, I mean, I'm the person I'm just gonna say my mom, she is gonna make me emotional. Um, oh no, it's so, it's so wonderful. I, I like, if you say one person, um, you know, of course my husband's amazing. My mom, she's just a rock star and she has taken care of all of us this year while going through so many other things, but making sure that we're all okay and, uh, yeah, I'm just going to say her. She's she's just, she's a rock star and she holds it all together for all of us. Um, and it's been a hard year. We went months without really seeing each other, you know, kind of like at the front door, dropping something off, a care package saying hello. So then when we all got vaccinated and we could hug each other, it was like the most wonderful moment ever. And I'm like, okay, we can never go a year without hugging again. So I think that probably, you know, her, it's been just such a weird time to not like hug and hang out with your mom. Um, so yeah, she's the best. So I'll say her. Yeah. Well, you are definitely shining like a light. So, and your mom obviously is as special as you are. So yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 We definitely, as I say to Alexandra, just remember where you came from me. That's right. Yep. I, I have responsibility for that. So what a beautiful way to end this. So oh, thank you so much. It's been yeah. so great. Yeah, it was so fun. So people can, you know, find you, you gave your information and um, keep doing the great work you do, Jamie. You, you're, you. you rock. You're amazing. <laughs> Thanks so much. To, uh, hope to have you back soon and have more conversations. Thank yep, you so absolutely. much. Thank have you. Thanks. Bye. Thanks.